Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 404 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. Don't worry, this is a real podcast. It's not an error. 404. Never mind. In this episode, I chat to Robert Sajko of Room C Games about their turn-based tactical RPG roguelike, The Hand of Merlin. Can I say Merlin like that, can't you? Merlin. It's like this sort of evocative word that is... Echoed through the many centuries. I don't know why I'm talking like this, but it's true, I guess. The man, the myth, the person that is Merlin. Anyway, what is Hand of Merlin? It's a tactical RPG um, with some very interesting mechanics that we delve into. This show talks about area of effect, which does exist in other games, but the way it's been done here is is is, is quite interesting. We sort of like dance around the issues of how tabletop role-playing games and tactical tabletop games has influenced the creation of these video game tactical RPGs. It's obvious, there's an obvious link between the two, but we really sort of explore it in great detail in this episode, and I was really, really fascinated to hear how that transition occurred and how it's interpreted, uh, because no one really, well, that's not true, no one really, of course they do. But I haven't heard many people talk about it objectively in an abstract way as we do in this show. As you do with many concepts of video games, that's one of the reasons I created it now uh, nine years ago. Oh boy, nine years. Anyway, so uh, let's uh, listen to me from the relatively recent past talk to Robert about the Hand of Merlin. Robert! Hi! Um, Who are you it, and what do you do? Well, my name is Robert. I'm a programmer at Room C Games. And, well, more than that, actually, I'm like the co-founder and the owner of the whole company. 
Uh, it's a, it's a relatively small indie team, so you have to wear many hats. So I'm like the programmer, the uh, like the, the manager, the project manager, hiring manager. Like uh, I do like bits and bits and pieces of everything that uh, needs to be done that nobody else is taking care of. So yeah, a bit of a jack of all trades, you could say. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, so how did you make your start making flashy lighty video games? How did I make a start in video games? Well, um, how far do you want to go? Like when I was a kid. Oh, it's back now. We've had guests on talk about, you know, I was programming things when I was a fetus. So by all means, I heard yeah. like, the sound of like some computer when I was in the womb. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. Maybe maybe it had something to do with, yeah, yeah. you know, Chernobyl going off while I was in the womb and yeah. you know, <laughs> superpowers. Uh, and I decided to be a programmer. That's and, you it, know, yeah. Making awesome games. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you don't have a cape though, so that might not be true. But we shall see. Well, yeah. this is more like my Clark. Uh, Kent, oh, yeah, Clark so, Kent thing. Yeah, you got yeah. the glasses for it and everything. So yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> take them off, all of a sudden you're all the super super no. pro program. Yeah, okay. I, I shouldn't take them off. No, no, because yeah. then you'll be blind. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, it did start when I was a kid. You know. Mm. Um, uh, there was like, you know, it was back in the 90s, you know, and I was, you know, uh, playing on like PC386, you know, like those ancient, like the Pentium chip was brand new back then. Mm. And uh, if you wanted to like share games, there was no internet. So I went, you know, uh, and hanged out with kids uh, from the block and, you know, sharing cats and, and, and things like that, like floppy, floppy disks. And there was this older kid who uh, actually went to college and he showed me about programming. Uh, and I was like, wow, there's this thing called C++ and you can, you know, make it print statements and stuff. And then I had an idea and it was like mind blowing. What if I program games like that? That's it. You know, that was when, when the idea was born and, you know, uh, fast forward, I went to the same college, I got my degree. Um, and immediately I, um, got a job at Crow Team actually as, as a programmer, I worked there on a serious Sam franchise, uh, and also the Tiles principle. I've spent like 10 years with them. I learned a lot about programming, about uh, various things. And uh, at one point I said, you know, uh, why don't I start my own business? And uh, well, here I am. Here you are. What mm -hmm. a story. Serious Sam. I remember those. Or say remember, they're still around. And the strange headless creatures running with a bomb and yet screaming. That was the one thing that really freaked me out. Like, how are they screaming? But they are, and they were terrifying. But, uh, mm. yeah, it just basically leans into the absurdity of things when it comes to Serious Sam. So, yeah, nicely done. And Talos Principle, what, what, a, what a puzzle game. Wow. There's a game just just messes with your head because it just basically exploits the fact that, well, what you can't see is going to change. You know, it's all about the whole tree in the forest. When it falls down, does it make a sound? If there's no one there mm. to hear it. Well, yes, of course it does. We know that, but that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. But then here you are doing Arthurian Legends, which is not the first time this podcast has had a show about Arthurian Legend focused game, uh, Pendragon or Pendragon, however you want to pronounce it. Um, that was featured uh, by Inkle uh, a few a year ago or so, maybe. Um, so yeah, uh, very different game. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that's, 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 it's quite a storied history. So well done, 
for making that, realising that I want to do a thing, can't do it here, I might as well do it myself, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're creating, you can answer this as behalf of your team or or personally, but um, what do you believe are your biggest influences? Hmm. My biggest influences, uh, as in, you know, for making the hand of Merlin or like in general? Both. 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 Well, you know, uh, for the hand of Merlin, I would say, you know, um, that game is like a fusion of genres, you know. So uh, on one hand, it has the, uh, uh, like the tactical combat, which you could see in games like XCOM. But also it has the whole, you know, um, let's explore uh, a world, let's, you know, make a journey and, you know, let's meet random encounters and see what happens. That's the kind of the roguelike aspect, uh, which you can see in games like uh, Faster Than Light or Slade Aspire. And um, at the time, there wasn't really a game that combined those two things. And, you know, I was passionate about those kinds of mechanics. So I said, you know what, let's let's try and fuse those. Uh, something awesome is going to happen, I'm, I'm sure. And, um, uh, well, I think we, we are onto something because people seem to be responding to, to the game well. Um, but that's just the mechanical aspect of it. And on the, uh, like the narrative aspect, um, well, of course, you already mentioned the whole Arthurian mythos. That's like the baseline, you know. Mm-hmm. But here again, we said, um, um, what would happen if, if we meshed that uh, and we did something like, we call it like the clash of flavors, you know. And um, our story writer, he had like a vision. You know, he said, I just saw a knight uh, in shining armor on a horse, you know, charging against like a monster from from depths of space, you know, like something that came out of the Alien franchise. Uh, you know, like just imagine if he had face huggers, but in medieval England, you know, how they react to, to that sort of stuff. So it's like mixing, you know, those horror elements, even like Lovecraftian type elements with... Um, Arthurian mythos, and that's something that I don't think has ever been done, or at least I don't know about it, about that specific combination. And uh, I think it's really fun. Yeah, I like that idea. It's a, so you're just inspired by, or driven maybe, by what was seemingly to most lay folk as being a very strange and flippant idea, and why would you want to do that? So actually, no, let's, let's explore that. I mean, it's not for the first time space and medieval has been mixed together um i think there's a game called elex that, that, that explores that i haven't played it very much personally but i think i have a copy somewhere so i think i gave it away for free you know when they do that with twitch they keep giving games away and stuff what is this i've got mountains of them but anyway um it's it's just that the idea of of, of having you know spell jammer of course on D and D that they did it for many years. I wasn't keen. I wasn't keen. I'm only bringing it back, but I hope they fix it. But no, I like the idea of uh, an, uh, you know um, an old one facing down a, a knight in shining armor <laughs> rather than a dragon. Maybe it wasn't a dragon. Maybe it was Cthulhu himself. Who knows? Best not. Yeah, best not and you know, especially if you can play with it, like you could say, well, of course they would call that a dragon. You know, yeah, they're just peasants from medieval ages. They don't they, know what it is. They don't. Know so it is. That, that's why you know, that's, like it's an explanation of why do they have you know those things like mandrakes or you know um, griffins or you know those like yeah. weird animal combinations. Well, it was just a way to interpret you know what happens if aliens actually came in the to, context. To yeah, in the context mm. that they understand it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just like. We can't frame. We can't frame this. We don't understand it. So we just 
make it so it's more familiar to us otherwise we lose our minds because the mere concept of creatures from another world is just like well that doesn't exist there aren't other worlds and it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way it's, it's very very interesting but yeah i just like the idea of you're being influenced by a mere just a, a glimpse of a a, a a tiny drop of an idea and then you make an entire game around it that is not uncommon not uncommon at all in fact, most game design actually spawns from one simple little idea at 3 a.m. that someone woke up and wrote down on a bit of paper. And you bring it into the office next day and we go, we're going to make this. And they go, pad of paper. No, no, this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but that, that doesn't, it's not unusual. I mean, look at Quake. <laughs> if you look mm. at Quake objectively as a game, like, I was listening to a podcast recently called DOS Game Club about it. And like, they just make it up as they go along, pretty much. It's just nonsense. You got like, you know, you got a lightning gun and you're fighting against knights. Why? No explanation given. <laughs> just, just, just shoot it, mm. you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. Mash, mashing up of different genres is, is a fun thing to do. But you know, on, on the other hand, for us, it actually kind of does make total narrative sense when you think about things, you know. Um, for example, you know, we, we wanted to have the, um, the roguelike experience, you know, so you start a run, you, you probably die the first time you, you tried because you don't know all the mechanics. Then you try again and you get a bit further and then you have this loop of, you know, you're learning things, you're feeling good about yourself, like right, when you figure things out and eventually you actually reach the final boss and, you know, defeat it and, you know, you have your first full victory. Um, but as you do that, you know, each time uh, the world is slightly different. You know, there's a different ruler in Albion, you know, or, or you know, there's um, maybe there's always, you know, the lady of the lake, but she'll tell you different things. You know, different things might happen there. And um, um, so w- w- where I'm going with this is that um, we took that weird narrative of, you know, space traveling wizards and stuff to explain how or why that's happening. You know, it's not really the same world. It's like a new dimension each time. Yeah. And you, Blair, you're Merlin. But And here's a, another influence. It's Lord of the Rings. You know, uh, Gandalf is not really a man. You know? No, he's not, it, no. He's like this angelic being. Mm. Uh, and we said, sure, you know, that works for us. So our Merlin is also like an interdimensional alien, you know, like a traveling wizard. And uh, when, when, you know, when he fails in one dimension, he just hops into the other one. And then in, in the new dimension, it's like a new earth with a, a new alternate history. And uh, that explains why things are happening the way they are, why things are slightly different each time. Yeah, absolutely. I think I do. I do love that idea um, of like parallel universes and multiple universes. And, and the fact that you have, like I said, one transcendent being, which is Merlin in this case. But, you know, I always, you know, I play a, a tabletop RPG called uh, The One Ring. And I say to new players, I said, so you're in, this is the Tolkien world. Can you tell me how many, how many characters can actually do magic in this world? That's right, five. <laughs> and it's not you. <laughs> it's basically one of the five wizards. So, yeah, it's not you. I only know two of the names. It's Gandalf, Radagast, and there's a few others, but three others. But I think Saruman was one of them. Anyway, yes, it was. But um, yeah, um, it's 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 quite um, uh, a lovely idea to have one person having this, you know, ability to see beyond their own realm, uh, and uh, the, the guide uh, Arthur, the many Arthurs, to to make the universe less rubbish, or try to bring it into some sense of 
normality and because something's up and you you're there to fix it but you don't know what you're fixing <laughs> it's great <laughs> so next question um what video game developer do you admire most and why uh oh you mean like which developer do i admire yeah, most yeah yeah um well, okay, I would say, um, you know, from my personal point of view, I admire uh, Larian Studios uh, because of how they managed to, you know, uh, just make it, you know. Um, I mean, I read, you know, the, like the uh, articles in the newspapers, newspapers, how they got really close to even like bankruptcy and... Um, uh, but you know they, they persevered through all of that. They uh, finished their project. It was, of course, the Divinity Original Sin. Yeah, and yeah, it turned out to be great. And you know that's sort of like uh, my motto. You know, um, people would ask me like, okay, you had a stable job. You know, you worked at Pro Team. It was like uh, you know a good place to be. Why start your own company? And because I wanted to see if I could do it. And you know, I wanted to create something, something new that I wouldn't have had the chance. And um, uh, you just have to persevere. You know, you have to keep believing in yourself in the project and keep pushing forward and use whatever you know resources and um, knowledge you have to to make it happen. And uh, I saw an example in in Larian of uh, how they did it, and I was like amazed. And that's why I respect them uh, because I know from personal experience how difficult it is to to actually make it as a small indie uh, game dev. You know. Yeah, because people don't really know, most people don't really know how old the Divinity series actually is. It goes back much, much older than the one, the two games that we know now. And uh, they're the ones I remember them from. It's like, oh, mm. when, when it first appeared, I went, what, they're still making the Divinity games? Wow. I didn't think they did too well. I mean, I like them, but most people don't really talk about it. It's like one of the many sort of hack and slash RPGs out there like, you know, Nox is one of them, it's a contemporary and there's all sorts of little games that, you know, um, Titan Quest, they're kind of like, sort of like, and like, yeah, it's Divinity games and like, oh, they made a, another one, really? Okay, Original Sin, oh, okay, they, they, they're locking onto this world and keep on at it but many, many of those titles, they fell by the wayside but they just kept on going, you're right, despite everything, and it's now one of the most celebrated pair of games, the last two, that has been for, for um, computer RPGs, as known CRPGs, rather than JRPGs. Um, they are, you know, one of the most celebrated titles of all time. In fact, they, I still can't get my head around the fact they're on, like, PlayStation 4 and stuff. I'm like, mm. how? I mean, they're a PC. I mean, I'm not one of these people like, oh, it should, no, it should be on a PC. No, it's just for me, I just know there was a PC game developer. No, they don't care now. It's just all, all, all sorts of platforms. It's fantastic. I think it's even on Switch. I can't remember. But anyway, um, no, that's a really good shout. I think it's the first time anyone's really mentioned Larian. But you're right. They do a really good showing. I mean, of course, they're doing Baldur's Gate 3, which is a game mm-hmm. yeah. I'm utterly refusing to play until it's finished. No offence, Robert, but... Baldur's Gate is, is a, you know, I mean, I like to help with his development, but I'm kind of busy. So I'm just waiting for it until that 1.0 comes out, and then I'll jump on it. <laughs> yeah, we, we hear that a lot, even for, for our game. You know, people would leave reviews like, okay, this looks really interesting, but I'm going to wait for 1.0. You know, yeah, so I understand yeah. that. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if I had more time, I would, but I do not. And I have to be mm-hmm. honest with myself. You know, can I actually contribute to the creation process, which is what early access is about. And if I'm honest with you, no, 
I just don't have the time too much on, so I don't. And that's you would expect that, wouldn't you? Rather than someone saying, "Oh, you know, promising the earth and delivering nothing." We've all been there. Oh, have we been there? So no, of course, yeah. Uh, it's not for everyone, you know. No, but no, no, then no. We, we do have people who do contribute, and I'm very happy that you know. Uh, we have like a working uh, a model here, so yeah, yeah. some people get really, you know, to be able to be there in the front lines, you know, on our Discord channel and actually directly influencing, you know, what the next update will be. And for those nice. people, it's great. It is indeed. It is indeed. So, last question of the first half. See you. Well done. You made it. Here we go. What are you playing right now? Ooh, right now. Um, uh, hmm. Well, I'm kind of in between games, you know. Um, I like to keep trying uh, various things that uh, show up uh, on, on Steam. Um, but, like, right now, I'm, I'm actually exploring an old flame of mine. It's called World of Warcraft Classic, you know. Um, <laughs> I got sucked into it. Uh, no, goodness out, And it's something I played as, as a kid, like, back in high school. And uh, I was like, wow, they're bringing that back. Like, I got, I got to remind myself how that was, you know. After swearing blind that they would never be able to do it, it's a waste of time. <laughs> no one wants to play Division of Warcraft. It was terrible. We've learned a lot. Everything's been advanced. We don't need to. Oh, wait, no, hang on, fine. <laughs> you know, what, what, what a climb down. Went, okay, fine. And now it's one of the most popular services they do. Yeah, yeah. So what is it? Is it up to Burning Crusade? It is, yeah. And right. uh, as I said, they're, they're preparing for Wrath of the Lich King. So um, that's kind of what brought me in. That was like my favorite uh, like expansion of the whole Warcraft universe. Yeah, I, I, I really massively got into World of Warcraft back in the day. I was a raider. I was a cleric. I was a white. Sort of priest, I should say. With, I had full, I had full legendary gear. I was full on this glowing thing. Mm. Everything, all my gear wasn't purple, my friend. It was orange. It was ridiculous. I had mm. actually finished the content. You know, I killed, killed Nefarian, one of my favourite raids to this day. And that was back in the day when it was forty people, not twenty five. And it was just ridiculous, the dance you had to do to kill that dragon. But we did it. I still remember the yells and screams when we actually took it out. And they, you, you hoisted the dragon's head in the middle of the, the town in, 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 in um, Stormwind. And, ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, what, what, a, what a time. Uh, I never, I never, never take, one of my favourite gaming memories was taking down Nefarian. And you describe it to people like, 40? Yes. There was 40 of us. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember. I was never like really too much of a raider. I mean, right. I was a kid back then. Of course, know, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, you know, I just had those memories, you know, of, of having some really fun times, like seeing things for the first time, like a huge open world, you know, and things like that. And um, so, yeah, when 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 I saw it, it's you know, like uh, having a resurgence. I was like, wow, nostalgia all over. Yeah, me. yeah. <laughs> it's just the, the fact that you could look across the... The, the scene look across the landscape and you know that mountain over there you could walk there and not once did you see a loading screen yeah <laughs> now i know you know as a developer they did some amazing tricks to allow that to happen it was loading it was doing all that but you just couldn't see it and they made sure that the whole concept of zones really wasn't a thing on the outer landscape 
but it was when he went into dungeons. It was very clever, very clever. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, it, it's like magic. You know, yeah. a sufficiently advanced technology will look like magic. So, yeah. and <laughs> it's almost twenty years old. I keep mm-hmm. having to remind people of this. It's almost twenty years old, and um, uh, I just can't believe how much we've advanced. Oh, indeed, in some cases, not so much. But that's a topic for another time. But if we're here to talk about advancing things. And uh, it was kind of a segue to part two of this show. It really isn't. But anyway, I still think Hand of Merlin is an advancement in game development and design. That's why I've got you on here, Robert. Generally, it really is. Because I was so excited. At first, I only saw it. I saw a screenshot of it. And I'm going to, I'm gonna, you know, keep my powder dry before I save something. I'm gonna, but there's this one part that made me chuckle. And it made me smile. It was just a screenshot. I went, oh, look at that. So, let's find out what that is by uh, delving into part two of this fine show. At least I think it's a fine show so far. uh, Let's uh, find out what is The Hand of Merlin. So, Robert, first question. Please tell us, what is the Hand of Merlin? Well, uh, the Hand of Merlin is, I would say, a tactical turn-based roguelite. Um, that might be a mouthful, so let, let me like break it down. So, um, uh, on, on one hand, you have the whole um, tactical aspect of it, which is uh, similar to games like XCOM. You know, so you have a squad of three heroes. And they face off against an enemy squad, which is usually around that number as well. And you take turns. Uh, So first your whole squad goes, then the enemy squad goes. And this gives you an opportunity to um, think about various tactics you can employ, like uh, setting up an ambush, waiting for the enemies to start moving, then uh, shooting arrows at them, etc. 
Uh, and the movement is also grid-based. Uh, so it's very like, you know, almost like playing chess, but there's like random chance involved in it. So sometimes you'll hit, sometimes you'll miss. Um, it could be very rewarding, like if you're into that sort of uh, like a thinking man's game, it's it's uh, very rewarding to see your uh, like little strategies, you know, working and paying off. Um, then on the other hand, it's also a roguelike, and that means uh, world exploration. That means random encounters. That means never being quite sure what's going to happen next. Uh, it also means emergent storytelling. So there's no like uh, set narrative that you follow. Like there's no main campaign that you have to finish by going through points A, B, and C. Um, you just explore the countryside, uh, moving from one location to the other, uh, moving to the next zone. There's there's four zones in the game, and um, whatever happens along the way, that's your story. That happened uniquely. It, it probably never happened exactly the same way again. Uh, you'll meet new people, uh, like actual different heroes to recruit. Um, different things will happen even on the encounters that you've been to before, um, uh, etc. Uh, and of course, dying is permanent, like in any real roguelike. So um, if you make a bad decision somewhere and it leads to, you know, uh, Losing a hero, that hero is lost for that run. So you have to recruit a new one to replace your lost hero. Yeah. Which I'm going to delve into a little bit aspects of that, which present interesting, well, shall we say, presumptions that don't apply to games like this. But before we do, I want to talk about more about the tactical aspects. So this, you know, Head of Merlin, you could argue quick glance you might think oh look it's the banner saga no i mean there's similarities between it but actually the banner saga is a big difference between what you just said a big big difference first of all it's not roguelike and second of all um the character's initiative is mixed intermingled with the enemies so you can't do the same tactics you could say it's also oh, it's shining force if you're really old well yeah mm. Again, not roguelike, but it is a tactical RPG. Maybe it's Final Fantasy tactics. All these things. You could throw... There's things you've borrowed from, and that's fine, because that's the best point. You're standing on the shoulders of giants. That's how game development, or indeed every development of any, any medium, works. But I want to talk about one aspect of tactical play. And I think you've done a great job of it, but I want to explain to me is being in the right place at the right time and not exposing your characters to immediate potential danger based on the information that's presented to them. And that's a fundamental understanding of what... You need to be a successful tactical player uh, of these games like this. You, you mustn't rush things ever. You must have patience if you go rushing in yes you may indeed take out one of the enemies but at what cost because i've often seen people streaming it and playing it and they go rushing in not realizing that four enemies are about to surround them yes they've just taken someone out that's great but what happens then when they're surrounded by four enemies what they're going to do so what do you think in the the hand of merlin what have you done in its design to make sure that the player becomes quickly aware of this without 
hitting them over the head of the... Of the, of the Mm, okay, that's a really good question. So, um, and it's actually a bit wider in scope than just the battle itself, because mm. it pertains to choices you make uh, in the textual encounters as well. You have to always be aware of what are the risks of anything that you're doing. And in order to be aware, we have to have like really clear UI to give you all of that information. So... Um, UI is really important. We spend a lot of time um, making sure that you have all the info you need at a glance, uh, especially in combat. Um, we've done like multiple revisions of that UI to make sure we get to that point. And also in the design of the battles themselves. So, for example, uh, we purposefully decided not to have battles drawn out too long. You know, for, for not just that reason, but also we want to make sure that each battle will take no more than about five to ten minutes so that the whole runtime will not take more than four hours. You know, it's important because it's a roguelike. But it also means that there's less chance of you, uh, you know, like just uh, running into situations like that where you think you're done, but then all suddenly more enemies spawn. No, we have some, you know, uh, wave spawning systems, but it's usually... Um, uh, in a constrained enough area that it's kind of hard to surprise you in such a way. Uh, so it's really more about having shorter, intense morsels of, you know, uh, combat than a single sprawling uh, combat encounter. Um, and on top of that, there's like uh, so many details about uh, letting you know what's going to happen. Like, you know, uh, um, some things we don't reveal, like like, like some details about enemy AI, but that's part of the roguelike experience. So we expect you to actually learn so that when you see, for example, there's a, a an enemy, we call it Mandrake. Uh, it kind of looks like a walking tulip from hell. <laughs> um, then you immediately know what kind of dangers it presents, you know, and um, if, for example, and you can also see that in the tooltip, like if you hover over the uh, enemy, it'll remind you what the enemy does, what kind of special mechanics it has. Uh, for example, uh, when it dies, it bursts and, and uh, infects everyone near it with some uh, something that you don't want to be infected with. Um, and it deals lots of damage. Uh, but once you learn that, you figure out how to tackle that type of enemy so it doesn't surprise you. And sooner or later, you, you're going to learn how those various monsters work. And whatever order the game throws them at you, you'll have like a, some kind of a tool or strategy at your disposal to, to handle, uh, handle that. And you'll always know, you know what's happening. And, and uh, if you have the right tools, you'll know how to use them. That's a great response and great detailed explanation of almost what leads into my second question uh, because the first one is really setting up to like explain the positioning. You're right, it's, it's much more to it than that. It's really about how the enemies interact with you, but you don't find that out until you do so. Until you do so. Um, so with it being a, a roguelike or roguelite, the t terms are interchangeable. They're not, but anyway. But it is basically a, a game about iteration. About you trying something, experiencing it, and going, I'm going to learn from that outcome. And many people go, oh, you learn from your mistakes. No, you learn from outcomes. So you actually do learn from successes as well. So I always say, no, you learn from your outcomes. If you do something, it's successful, you'll do the same thing again. Because, you know, the definition of madness, you know, you, you do something the same again. You don't expect a different outcome. And it's always going to be the same way. So, well, actually, yeah. that is 
pretty good point. There, there's one specific uh, moment from uh, development game that I just want to bring up. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, well, uh, you can learn from success as well, and we, we made sure that you can because there were like um, we call them ultimate abilities. You know, when when uh, monsters do something which is their most powerful attack. And uh, in some cases, for some of those, if you were successful in dodging that attack, like nothing would happen. Like you wouldn't see the attack going off, like actually missing you and, you know, telling you the information. Oh, okay, I did good. I dodged that. Uh, you know, the, the big ball of goo missed me and exploded somewhere else. So we made sure that whenever such a thing happens, even if you're successful in, you know, stepping away from the tile that's about to blow up or something, the effects happen and you see them happening and then you you see your character actually not being affected by them. So yeah. you can pat yourself on the back and say, okay, I, yeah. I dodged that. You know, I did good, you know. And all these tactical games do that. They all do it. XCOM and, and indeed way back in the game, Rebel Star Rangers, they, 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 Raiders, sorry, they just did all those things. They did that. But what I want to know, and this is really... If it's a game about iteration and repeat play and stuff, that goes against the odds of tactical strategy games because you don't do that. You don't... It's all about self-preservation to the nth degree. You will do everything you can to make sure that no one dies. You know, people joke about, oh, mate, I made, I made my sniper after our best friend and he got taken out in XCOM because they're playing Iron Man mode rather than just regular mode where you can save whatever you like because you, mm. you do something and you go, oh, no, that doesn't work. Reload. You just save <laughs> scum way through the encounter. You can't do that with Hand of Merlin. And that's an, at odds. So you've got a tactical uh, RPG, for want of a better word, both with roguelike sort of, and that's at odds with each other. So I have to ask the question, how did you find designing the game system knowing that it's actually based on this iterative method of repeated play. How, how, how did you find it difficult? Talk us through that. Mm, okay, so I, I get where you're coming from. It can seem like it's on, at odds with uh, with one another, but in reality, it, it actually works. Yes. Uh, because um, even if, let's say, something terrible happens and you make a mistake on a tactical level and uh, like you, you lose a hero and suddenly your party composition is you know, ruined, you, you're missing an important element of, of your party, and you would say, okay, oh, like, no, that's, that's bad. Like, I have to start over or, or you know, load a, a previous save game. No, no, you don't. No, no. Because factor that in and uh, there's always uh, an opportunity uh, for you to get a replacement. Um, either for your hero, for your relic, whatever it is. Um, and the good thing about it is that it actually kind of forces you to try something new. You know, um, it's it's a different mindset. It's not really a, a full-blown, like, uh, RPG where you can customize your heroes and play that one hero that's kind of like your avatar and, you know, you just stick with the same party from beginning to the end of a really long campaign. Yeah, yeah. No. In roguelike, um, it's all about making do with the tools that you have. And uh, sometimes, you know, when when you do that, you, you make a mistake and you're pushed out of your comfort zone. That's a new way for you to learn something new and figure out like, hey, you know, I can actually use this other weird party composition where I have like three archers. And yeah. it works if I do this and that. Like, for example, 
I can just use decoys instead of having a dedicated, you know, like a tank character. Uh, it's a different play style, but you might not have, you know, ever encountered it if, if you didn't get to randomly uh, recruit three archers, you know. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting moment of, of gameplay. For me, let's do the WoW comparison. We talked about WoW earlier. Let's say, let's say the warrior gets turned into a sheep. Oh, no. Oh, no. And now all of a sudden, the main character you're trying to running around. So what do you do? You send the druid into tank. It'll be fine. <laughs> they just turn into a bear and go. I'll be fine. And they go running in and and again, that's a great example of like, well, I've, we've 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 really this we're screwed. Don't worry, we've got a backup plan. We've got Plan F, <laughs> or yeah. should we Plan D? Plan Druid, and if off they go. So yeah, you're right. It's it does it does feel like it's at odds with itself, but it really isn't. And I just think uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's happy accident or it really wrote itself. Maybe a bit of both. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you a little secret. We have this system in game called the Game Master, uh, right. which simply tracks everything that's happening, and it may or may not direct what encounters. Randomly happen, yeah. Or sure, you have a good time. So indeed, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, so like, it's all flow, Robert. They all flow these questions, but I want to talk about the overworld because there is a series of nodes across the overworld, across Christendom, from what I can see. Uh, it's about 900 AD, something like that. So when it's set 950 AD, more or less. And you're going across Christendom in England, Ireland, and, and across Northern Europe, down to right across to Middle East, through to Jerusalem. It's wonderful stuff. And um, they are things happen in the overworld. You've got to keep fed, for example. You've got to get your rations up, make sure everyone's, you know, and encounters occur. And you can have like a choice between one or the other, and then that forces a a path which you may not want to go down, but you've chosen it and you've got to own it. Um, how have you found balancing this aspect of the game, knowing how much it influences what happens in the tactical in- engagements? Those, what have you found, sort of creating these two? Although they are linked very closely, they are quite different experiences. How have you found balancing those? You know, what, making sure one doesn't overwhelm the other. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's another great question. So balancing that was not easy. No. Uh, <laughs> we. <laughs> I mean, we used a lot of different tools, like you know, a big old spreadsheet with you know uh, managing all the numbers to make sure that numerically all things fit. But also, um, uh, it's not all about mathematics. It's about the feeling of it. So, like the idea with the. Um, overworld was that you have to manage your resources so you have to manage your risks and your rewards like um you could choose a path which goes through all the most dangerous areas and you're hoping to get all the best rewards but then maybe you'll start losing too much health maybe you'll lose a hero where where you really didn't want to lose a hero and then uh you're going to be in such a difficult situation that you won't be able to progress so just fail on that run uh, or you could just take the easiest route possible, but then you won't get enough uh, resources. So then again, you won't be able to face the final boss, for example. So you have to like really um, manage your uh, like growth while you know pushing yourself to the challenges that you think you can overcome. 
Uh, it takes a while to like figure out uh, a good balance. Uh, but of course, as your skill progresses, as you get better at combat, you can take on more difficult challenges and actually uh, seek out like all the corrupted nodes, for example, and uh, get all the best loot. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, getting the right balance was just a lot of trial and error and playing it and watching other people play it. And um, even then, you know, we, we actually ended up with uh, multiple difficulty levels. So that if you only want to, you know, care about the story and, and you know, uh, I want to see what happens next and uh, explore what my knights uh, can, you know, choose and, and say to people, uh, that's what story mode is for. But if you think you're really good at the game, you can try hard mode. And uh, then every mistake, you're going to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's why those modes exist. But for those who really buried themselves into the code to the point where they can just see the woman in the red dress, Matrix reference there, everyone, uh, then, you know, that's for those people who, you know, that's one of the reasons I start actually playing WoW. There's WoW again. I can only blame Robot Robert for this. He's the one who started it. It's not me. But, you know, I stopped playing because I could, just, I could actually see the code. I could see the spreadsheets hitting each other. And at that point, I actually stopped playing. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's, once you do that, you realize that people think they can see it and they can, they know their interactions and it turns out, turns out not. It's not when you play things like Doom on ultra high difficulty. It's a completely different game. Every encounter is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Every single one in Doom when you play it or, you know, I'm playing Ultimate Doom and Ultimate, um, yeah, yeah, the, the one in 2016, Doom, any of them, they're just terrifying when you crank up the difficulty. They've become a very different experience. And similar with the Hand of Merlin, you know, everything becomes every, every single decision is just like, oh, this is the worst thing. I'm going to die. You know, <laughs> FTL suffers from that as well. Anyway, <laughs> um, so here we are. Last question. I don't know. All good things must come to an end. Here we are. There are clear influences, at least from what I can gather. And this is what piqued my interest at the Hand of Merlin when I saw the screenshot. I saw something on the ground around a character. Skulls everywhere. Lots of red skulls. Doesn't really explain what they are. Just, just, they're just there. And I immediately went, huh, that's a attack of opportunity, isn't it? That's the threat zone. You've got threat zones around your, your characters. <laughs> and... So, for listeners, if you're not familiar with this concept, when you're playing tap- uh, tabletop RPGs, principally D and D Fifth Edition, I think it was in Fourth. No, I know it's in Fourth Edition as well. But if you left an adjacent square away from a creature, um, without disengaging, actively disengaging, you would actually be attacked. And it exists in the hand of Merlin. It happens. It doesn't explain itself. You just say, you're going to move? Or you're going to suffer for that? You've got all these people around you. are just going to walk away? They think you're going to let you get away with it? And I just love the fact that you teach the player that by letting them do it. Like, just have at it. Go on, just see what happens. And then you, can, then you start exploiting it. So I have to ask, why is it there? And did it indeed come from that space? Because I'm very familiar with tactical RPGs, or, sorry, not t- tabletop RPGs, when using figurines and Roll20 or what have you. But is that where it came from? Or is this something you thought would be a fun thing to do? Is it, you know, just, just, just curious as to why, because I've never seen it before, at least I don't think so, in other tactical RPGs. So talk mm. me through, how did it come about? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you noticed this. Um, actually, yeah, one of the influences was uh, like tabletop RPGs. You know, I'm, I'm a player of uh, Dungeons and Dragons myself. Um, uh, though, I mean, we didn't just add it because, oh, hey, they have it, so we should have it. No, no, I mean, no, 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 no. Uh, from uh, saying, okay, you know, um, how can we differentiate the classes? You know, we wanted to make sure that if you select a warrior for your party, that, you know, that warrior brings something to the table that makes it feel flavorful, unique, and, you know, have it some kind of a unique uh, mechanic uh, related to it, to it. And, you know, attacks of opportunity are a great way to do that. Because uh, as you said, you know, they just allow you to automatically attack anyone who tries to move away from you, uh, which really helps in the long run, you know, to, to do some extra damage. Uh, uh, Rangers have something else. They, could, they have like flanking, uh, which means if their target is, uh, you know, flanked by another unit, they get some bonuses to that. And those mystics have some kind of um, automatic healing when, when they attack. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it also works uh, for a roguelike because um, uh, we, we draw that um, indicator on the tile and then you move your character and you see what happens and then you learn. <laughs> and um, next time you know better and you know how to use it. You know, you know how to avoid it when the enemies do it and you know how to use it defensively to your own benefit. Um, so all in all, we, we just thought it really worked. And yeah, actually the idea did kind of probably come to us because most of the team does play um, Dungeons and Dragons and yeah. they yeah. have that kind of mechanic there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unique to d and I think because other, well, that's not true, other role-playing games do deal with it in, in different ways. Um, you know, if you are you trying to escape, then yes, and then okay, well, this creature now has a chance to swipe at you as you try to disengage and flee, which is fair. Uh, but I just don't remember seeing it. And probably listeners are going to go, I think you're fine, Chris. It isn't such I don't, I've never, it probably does, but I don't remember seeing it. But just so obvious. It was just so, and that screamed to me like, wait, they've done that? They've done it so you can actually can't just walk away? Because that's a common tactic in these games. I've done it all the time. Like, right, I've hit that, but there's that standing next to me. That's going to hurt me. I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to walk away. Like, makes no sense. But as if they go, oh, that's fair enough. He's walked away now. I can't hit him. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, The Hand of Merlin. And it's developed by Room C Games. That's a great name. Where's it come from? Oh, uh, maybe you could have asked that first. It's a funny little story. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. Right. Um, we'll keep it to so, last. Yeah, so so back when I was still working at Crow Team, uh, I actually started developing this prototype in my spare time, and I uh, when, when I thought like it was you know something worth show worthwhile to show someone, I knocked on the door of the CEO of of Crow Team, and I showed him the prototype, and he was like, "Huh, well, you know this this thing has potential." Um, so, and the next question was, what kind of budget do you need? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I mean, the guy was awesome, you know, uh, and the crew team as general was, was awesome and a big ally. Um, and long story short, uh, they actually offered us some initial funding and um, like a, a room inside their own office building. It was, by the way, room C. Room and C. this is where yeah, I brought yeah. in my, my first employees. Like, yeah. I, it, it's funny. Like, I don't think this ever happens in the industry. I was... Working for Protein at yeah. the same time as I started a new company, yeah. I started 
hiring people there. And we were all in the same building. And, you know, they were in the in Room C. So I just called them Room C Games. Room C Games. Yeah. I thought it was something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But uh, excellent name. So, yeah, and it's, uh, so you Head of Merlin, and it's published by Versus Evil. Um, and what platforms is it available on currently? Um, well, currently it's available on, on Windows and Linux and Mac on, on Steam. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm really excited to, to say this. Uh, so um, in just a few days, on June the 14th, we are doing the big 1.0 release. And we are actually coming out on all the platforms. Like all PlayStation of them. 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X and X, uh, Nintendo Switch, uh, Steam Deck, and like all of the Windows versions and PC and, and Mac. You know? Yeah, I've had a double with my Steam Deck already. It, it works a treat. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone. They're a, bit, they're a bit hefty, those things, but they're great. And uh, I was at UK Games Expo and I was traveling a lot. So I spent a lot of time distracting myself with the Hand of Merlin. Thanks for that. But um, that's fantastic news. So by the time this you listen to the show, it's already out, everyone, on all of the things. Even on your Nokia phone. Maybe not. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's only play Snake. We know that. Anyway, Robert, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for being so open and honest about the creation of uh, The Hand of Merlin. Um, more than welcome to come back for another episode to talk about whatever next or currently or have been working on whilst finishing off Hand of Merlin. I know how that works. There's always an overlap, but you will never tell me what it is until another 18 months, at least maybe even two years. That's fine. That's how it should be. But trust me, we'll be here to talk about it. But until then, thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs>